Welcome to another episode of the Afikr podcast. My name is Mikey Menno. Today we have a special episode about Palestine. This is part of a longer series. If you haven't watched some of the older ones that have come out this week and the weeks prior, please go check them out. Our guest today is Nadi Abu Saada, who is a architect and historian currently at ETH Zurich. Um, Nadi, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mikey. It's good to see you. Today is October 28th. We are recording this at 10.42 a.m. Palestine time, just to give people context about what's going on since it's a day-by-day situation. Um, Nedi, you and I met a couple years ago, um, and I've wanted to have you on the series for a while because we don't get a chance to speak to so many um, people who are thinking about architecture and I don't know if urban planning is the right the right terms, but basically thinking about the built world and and sort of the 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 way humans interact with the world um, around them and the buildings around them and how that shapes society. Um, and in particular, I feel like society in, in and life in Palestine is so deeply misunderstood that. Um, you're, you are an interesting person to speak to right now to give context about um, the history and how um, our understanding of, of life and the land in Palestine has sort of shaped, uh, changed over time. So um, what I'd love to do is start by having you just explain to a layman, yani me, what you, what you think you do and how it relates to what's happening today in Palestine. Thanks, Mikey, for the <laughs> polemic question. Um, actually, for me, I mean, what I can say is that I started as an architect. So I started as, you know, someone from the Arab world with a desire to study and work in architecture. And by architecture, I mean actual design of buildings. But it soon, um, soon after starting, I think I, I, I realized that we are at a point um, in the Arab world where we can decide either to jump straight into practice or to pause a little and try to think of where are we actually in terms of architecture and urban planning in Palestine, but also in the Arab world with large. So that. That sort of took me in a whole another journey to to start writing the history um, and, and theory of, of architecture and cities in the region. Um, I started with with Palestine, and one of the, the main questions um, that came to me. I mean, I, I'm someone who grew up in Palestine, and so to me, there was an immediate familiarity with with the architecture in Palestine. Right? Um, at the same time, when I was reading all these books being written about the architecture of Palestine abroad, uh, most of the focus was on the architecture of occupation. Uh, I think obviously, I mean, only the past two weeks, we have immediate evidence of why it's important to understand the architecture of, of occupation, meaning how, how the occupation utilizes spatial tools and instruments in order to oppress people. And we've seen this happen not, not only the past two weeks, not even for the past 75 years. 
since the first Jewish colonies were built in Palestine for the purpose of, of settler colonialism. So all the way back to the 1880s. So my purpose, um, at least during uh, working on, on the PhD, was to try and understand what were Palestinians doing at this same time. So at the same time that Jewish colonialism was increasing in Palestine, at the same time that the British rule started in 1917 onwards, what were the, the Palestinians doing? Were they just merely reacting to colonialism? Or did they have visions of their own when it comes to understanding, but also constructing their building? I would say that, that that's sort of the, the, the start of, of, of this question for me. Was it a question that you had like a hunch about or was it a, you had a hunch about the answer or were you like, why is no one even asking this question? That, that's also a good question. I think I, I had the hunch. Um, well, I'll tell you where the hunch came from. We're talking about a country um, that is thousands of years old. In, in the history of architecture, when we wanted to talk about the architecture of Palestine, we're talking about the history that stretches back all the way to antiquity, right, until the present. It couldn't have been possible for someone like me to imagine that all we have to say about our history is what has been done to us. Um, the colonialism, it, it hasn't been too long. I mean, 100 years is long in the lifetime of humans, right? but it's not in the lifetime of cities and the lifetime of, of architecture. Um, so, so what I wanted to understand is that there, there must have been another history to, to, to this period of, of extreme violent intervention and colonialism in Palestine. Um, and, and that's what turned out to be, to be the case. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to talk uh, about maps. And the way we, the way we think about the world, right? So much of what so much of what we reference when we talk about Palestine in twenty twenty three is referencing all these maps, right? We talk about maps all the time. Hatta even we tattoo them on ourselves and we wear them around our neck and and we define ourselves with these straight lines that um, were created relatively recently, right? So. Um, in your research, how has the map of Palestine shifted over time? Um, not, and I don't mean over the last, since 1967. I'm not talking about that contraction and um, that type of erasure, um, uh, colonizing erasure. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about pre-World War I. How has it sort of shifted? I think one thing to keep in mind here is that maps don't simply represent geography. Maps invent geography. They create, they construct, right? I mean, a map is never an actual depiction of geography. And I think this, this seems very basic, but I think it's important to, to, to iterate. Yeah. Um, as far as Palestine is concerned, actually mapping has been and cartography with large has been, has been one of the instruments um, of, of imperial control. I say imperial and not necessarily just 
when it comes to settler colonialism and, and even British colonialism, but but even since the late Ottoman period, um, I mean, Palestine at the time is under Brit under Ottoman rule. Yet you already have something like the uh, British Exploration Fund, the Palestine Exploration Fund, which is a British-run organization, operate in Palestine as early as the 1860s. Um, and so that, that's, that's a subtle way in which European powers start to have a foot in Palestine, obviously uh, under the banner of, of science. Yeah. But in reality, all of these uh, efforts turned out to be useful, actually, for the later, when the British would come and invade Palestine in 1917, they relied on these maps that were produced earlier. Uh, to understand the geography, but also to conquer it. Yeah. You know, I find there's this yeah. like heartbreaking irony um, when I, I, you know, I, I live like so many people on social media um, and there's heartbreaking irony when people post photos online of, you know, pre-colonial Palestine and underneath it, it says like credit Palestine Exploration Fund. Um, and... It only, it took, I mean, it's not, I didn't grow up knowing that, that term, Palestine Exploration Fund, right? And it's a heartbreaking story. I mean, it's a, it's so insidious. Um, so, so for people who don't know, t tell us a little bit of the history of Palestine Exploration Fund and what its stated purposes were maybe versus, um, its intended uh, effects. Yeah, so so the for the Palestine Exploration Fund specifically, I mean the 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 main thing was archaeology. The main purpose, stated purpose at least, was archaeology. Of course, we need to understand that when it comes to nineteenth century British Empire, um, it's it's never just archaeology. Um, I mean, especially with Palestine, where there was this biblical charge, if, if you want, if we can call it that way. Uh, um, I mean, Palestine got a, a lot of attention, right? Uh, I mean, there were British archaeologists, but there were also German archaeologists in Palestine. Uh, and obviously, these people came on a mission. Uh, um, they were professionals, so they were trained as archaeologists and came with the real purpose of doing archaeological work. But to what end is, is the question, right? Um, and... and it's, it's, there's no doubt that this archaeological work came hand in hand with British imperial efforts to expand into the Middle East uh, and, 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 and obviously including Palestine. And this became very, very evident in, in 1917 when, when the British troops, the first British troops arrived in Palestine actually through Gaza. So they came from Egypt um, and, and Arab drove north uh, into into Gaza. Now, now, one thing I think, just to go back to your question about maps um, and, and this whole world of Palestine around World War I, um, actually one thing to note is that Palestine or the Palestine Front in, in World War I was one of the main sites where there was developments, significant developments in the science of cartography. Um, so in, in the World War I, you get the first war in, in, in the world's history, essentially, where aerial power 
is as important as, as ground troops, right? So there's a lot of uh, basically missions for aerial um, photography that's, that, that play a major role in the war. And it was in Palestine where the first attempts to draw maps out of aerial images took place. Um, there was a British officer, his name is Captain Hamshel Thomas. Um, he was a professor at Cambridge, actually, and, and, and he was present there on the Palestine front. And that's where he started using these aerial images to produce maps. So again, this idea of, of images, but also maps being not merely neutral depictions of the landscape, but rather tools that abstract this landscape into a certain features that you can then not only understand and analyze, but also conquer. Yeah, they were. So in this case, the maps were never an anthropological exercise. They were always the development of a military tool. In, in, in for the most part, I'd say. Mm. Um, can I get it? Can I ask you? In, in, at that point, this like Palestine front, and going back to your original sort of thesis that you were talking about, what sort of agency did Palestinians have, you know, indigenous uh, Palestinians of all shapes and sizes, for lack of a better term, um, all over Palestine, what, what agency did they have? Um, and in what, play, what role did they play in this this map making and um, a development of the built landscape. Yeah, so so I would talk a little bit about the, the pre-war period because in the sure. in the war, I mean, obviously Palestinians would be some of them would be conscripted uh, into the Ottoman army. Uh, some joined the Arab Revolt, um, so you have various ways of involvement in in the war effort. Uh, but up until that point. Uh, some Palestinians were actually involved in the, in the Palestine Exploration Front. Um, so there are records of Arabs and Palestinians being employed by the Palestine Exploration Fund, um, either as translators or even as archaeologists. So it's important to keep in mind that it's never, the history of colonialism is never purist in the sense that it never only relies on foreign expertise. Um, the local expert starts to emerge around the same time that these colonial ex or foreign expertise are also arriving into the shores of the Mediterranean. Um, and so in terms of actually the current work I'm trying to do is looking at the history of the profession of architecture in the Arab region with large, and how do we start to have a first generation of trained Arab architects. Um, and of course, the, the beginning of this in our region starts in Egypt. As early as the 1830s, we already have a school of architecture, a school of engineering, the Mandis Khan in Egypt. Um, and so this, this local expertise is really nurtured during this time already. When it comes to Palestine, I think uh, it's a bit later that you get trained architects. I mean, you need to wait until the 1890s and early 1900s to get the first Palestinian architects. But what, need, what we need to remember is that most architecture is built without architects, even today, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. whether you do have the architect figure or you don't have the architect figure, you have a built environment that is, being, that is expanding 
that is responding to the needs of demography, uh, that is expanding to the need of, needs of the economy, uh, that's, ex- that's responding to cultural shifts. You start getting public plazas and, and, and secular public spaces uh, in this period. And Palestinians are financing these projects, but also managing them. Hmm. Um, this is also a time when municipalities are created in, in the Arab world, right? Uh, 1870s onwards, the Ottomans introduced the municipalities uh, code. Uh, and so major cities uh, like Jerusalem, like Jaffa, like Nablus, like Beirut, um, all of these cities start to get municipalities. Uh, and these were run by the local population. Um, and their projects are basically led by the local population. Okay, I want to ask about that. Um, so people think that the sort of the nation state is this 20th century invention. Um, and so I was amazed looking through your stuff, this idea that, oh, you know, municipalities emerged as this almost like a, a technology had been introduced, right? Um, what what preexisted the municipality as a governing governance structure, and how did that actually change? Was it like was it this new device? Yeah. So so it's not like and 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 this is an, an, an argument that Orientalists like Bernard Lewis and, and the such yeah. used to make is that you know uh, Arab cities throughout the whole Ottoman era were chaotic. Right. Yeah. Um, that their their organization didn't amount to what European sophisticated planning and administration means. Right. Uh, but in reality, there was a very robust system of administration in in those cities, and and, and that that was wasn't centralized in the form of a single unit of the municipality, but was actually governed through things like Sharia courts, uh, wakf administrations. Uh, but also, and importantly, guild systems. Um, so all the, all the, they used to call them tawa'if harafiyya, which is difficult to translate, but basically uh, the guilds of the different crafts, of the different industries. Yeah, they're very syndicates, organized. basically. Exactly, exactly. They're the, they're the pre-modern syndicates, if you, if you, yeah. if you wish. Yeah. Uh, we, where, where, where the way that, that the city was organized, right? And so the moment you start to get municipalities, uh, it, it, it happens differently across different parts of the empire. So what happens in, 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 in Baghdad uh, or in Damascus is necessarily the same as what happens in, in Beirut or what happens in Yaffe. Um, in some cases, there was an absorption into these old means of governance into the new means of governance. In other cases, it was complete rupture. Uh, hmm. it, it, it was a change that, that happened actually over there. Um, and, and I think as historians, we should allow also for that possibility when we read and look back at history, um, that some moments are real moments of rupture, uh, others, others aren't. Um, so you start to get a municipal council that's essentially the head of the municipal council would be appointed from the Ottoman Empire, but all the members would be elected. Um, now elected by whom? Uh, well, the elites of society, those who pay a certain number of, 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 of taxes, um, and are males, 
are those mm. who, who could. So you have a, you have a mini democracy starting to emerge in the modern sense, essentially, with the establishment of these municipalities. How does that change, like effectively, daily life of uh, citizens and residents? Yeah. So so it, it it really does because I mean suddenly you're not only accountable to 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 systems that you're you're familiar with, but you're you're accountable to to something new to a centralized entity. Uh, so for you to build or to extend your house or to do something simple, it's not like you, you would just do it before without any rules. There were rules, but now the rules were different and they've started to adhere into what in urban planning terms we, we understand as, as modern urban planning. Um, so there's a lot of influence here of French ideas of urban planning absorbed into the Ottoman uh, understanding of, of of urban planning, and then observed into the the our Arab uh, understanding of of urban planning. Um, so you get the second hand European influence in a way over over how your cities look like, uh, over what materials you're supposed to build in, over the rules you're supposed to follow. Um, yeah. So so the built environment changes, and with it, I think social new social currents start to to emerge they they both influence each other it's not like one is is shaping the other alone yeah it's it's like so on one hand they're making maps that are inventing geography right and then on the other hand they're like making <laughs> ordinances and laws that are inventing geography as well yeah absolutely yeah um i want to talk a little bit about this uh this idea of like vernacular architecture um and and how that might be different than um or, or let me just ask you what is the opposite of vernacular architecture um in the context of palestine because I, i'm not sure i know the answer to that question vernacular i mean in the simplest terms vernacular architecture is the architecture built without the intervention of architects so it's the architecture that is is built by people um, and, and of course that is in, in the region, that is the majority of construction. Um, and sometimes that can look like Ashwaiyat, like what you see in, in uh, especially in Egypt at, at a large scale, but it could also look like elite neighborhoods that are simply built also without architects. Um, in, in the case of Palestine, I mean, it depends which period to understand the vernacular, because technically you could still call building being built today without architects, vernacular architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, but if by vernacular, you mean basically the, the, the traditional or historic architecture of, of Palestine, uh, we, then I would say that the majority of the built landscape of, or historical built landscape of Palestine dates back to the Ottoman era. So when we look at the old cities, when we look at most of what remains of, of Palestinian villages um, on the, in, in the West Bank, all of, uh, uh, all of these are basically, the majority of are built during, during the Ottoman era. And in that sense, they're not in any way dissimilar 
what you would find in Lebanon or or Syria. I think these are the, the these geographies were really inter inter mingled and, and and it's hard to draw a distinction. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I mean, you get some some people telling you there's a vernacular Lebanese house or vernacular Syrian house or vernacular Palestinian. I don't think these categories in architecture mean anything. Um, I think they mean something in in national terminology, but they don't mean much in, in, in architecture, actually. Yeah. Uh, Nadia, I have a question for you, and this is very much like me asking for a friend. Like, like I feel like you and I are, are maybe similar insofar as like we're having this, this like, um, this like super professional conversation, right? uh during a, a unbelievably a heartbreaking moment right and the people like every day and I'm not Palestinian I'm based in Beirut but people are checking on me and no Mikey Kifak you know how, how are you doing are you holding up are you doing okay um and I respond by saying and no I'm I'm doing I'm trying to do okay I'm one foot in front of the other you know I'm in many ways, my work feels more urgent than ever, but in other ways, it feels like more meaningless. Um, and, you know, for, for what you're doing, you're Palestinian, um, you study, your work has to do with Palestine, all right? And now, how are you handling, how are you coping? And now, how are you? I didn't even ask you. Look, I think the, the work is, is in, in many ways, is the least of my considerations or the least things that's on my mind at the moment. Yeah. Um, in, in full reality, like, I think there's a, there's a certain luxury with, with being able to, to zoom out and, and really interpret and understand the long spans of history. Yeah. Uh, sometimes there's something relieving in history because you realize that whatever you're experiencing at the moment uh, isn't isn't forever. I mean, when you understand that, really, and I mean it when I say that, empire, entire empire is collapsed, right? Yet, 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 Palestinians have have been able to maintain their existence throughout all of these challenging moments i think that that's something in uh, of itself right? and it's it's a reminder of what is possible uh, but in the day-to-day -day, at least for the past couple of weeks i mean to me i haven't even thought about work um yeah yeah until 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 now really um and yeah i think you 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 find solace in, in community, uh, in being able to see that there is a real solidarity taking place uh, at the moment. In many ways, I think the current moment filtered out who we really, you really need to, to have on your side and who we really don't. Uh, people with double standards, people who are unable to be consistent. Uh, about their support for for humanity and for the fight against colonialism, um, I think this moment is devastating. 
uh, this moment also clarified uh, a lot of things. Um, not so much within Palestine, because in Palestine, I think things have always been clearer than outside. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that I personally um, mm -hmm. feel that same pruning of my <laughs> social circles because come mm -hmm. in, it's just like, it's, it's um, miraculous. Uh, not miraculous, uh, astounding, I should say, how how many double standards there are. But so when you when we go back to the work, does it feel does it feel related? And no, like there's that there's an article that you wrote about stones in Jerusalem, right? Do you know Do you know what I'm talking about? Um the it's a word i don't know how to pronounce steronomy or something like that stereotomy stereotomy yes mm -hmm. when that article like uh is as um successful as it was right like a lot of people seem to have connected with it do you feel like and no you guys don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> this is all part of the <laughs> <laughs> the same problem. This wasn't like a cute little academic exercise. I'm talking about a deeper injustice here. Um, does it feel like it's completely disconnected? Like the the profession at large is not even making these connections? Absolutely. And, and I think this is important. I think what I'm realizing is that people like to write, and this includes architects and includes non-architects, but I think the academic field with large loves to talk about colonialism when it's over, when there's no cost to, to writing and talking about colonialism. Um, and so people will, will read, will create all these syllabuses, these you know, leftist writings from the 60s, uh, the yeah, Battle of France, Algiers, Fanon and, uh, yeah. and Said, yeah. and, you know, but as long as it doesn't have to do with the present, as long as it's something in the past that we could make a career out of, um, sorry, this is quite brutal, but it's, in my opinion, the truth, um, then, only then, is it meaningful to talk about it. And to me, that's actually the quite opposite of what should be happening. Um, I think there's a certain responsibility that academics should take on to respond not only to finished events, although I don't think they're really finished, but to the present, right? And, and, and historians, I think, have a double responsibility to, to do that. Um, yet in Western academia, this does not seem to be the case. Um, and, and I think that's the most frustrating part and not only for me, but I think in any of us, Palestinian or, or, or Arab or even pro palestinian operating in these, in these Western institutions at the moment, um, to see really no ability to, to, to have a spine, to stand for justice in the present, only when, um, as Hamad Kurt once put it, when it's no longer necessary, right? Um, so I, I think that's, that's, that's the important thing to, to keep in mind at this moment when it comes to academia.
What is the reception among your colleagues of when you when you express those sentiments? And I'll, let me ask you. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask them in two different groups. Mm-hmm. Colleagues are three different groups. Colleagues and no people who at your similar level of um, of tenure um, or years. Uh, maybe tenure is not the right word because it's a uh, but years spent in the profession. That's one group. The second group is your students. And the third group are your senior colleagues. What is the reception? Yeah. So I think this, this, the answer to this question would differ extremely across different geographies. And to me, I mean, I'm now working in a Swiss institution. And this is a new context for me. Uh, I mean, last year I was in the US. It was very different. Before that, in the UK, it was also very different. Uh, we, as far as Switzerland uh, is concerned, I think there's this this uh, aura um, or all, all engulfing feeling of you know Switzerland is neutral. Um, you know, it's it's a country without colonies. It's a country that doesn't have that history. It's a country that can maintain its its objectivity in all such conditions. But I think that's completely false. Um, and I think the past two weeks are yet another evidence that this is completely false. Um, Switzerland just cut funding to 11 Palestinian organizations operating either within 48 or in, in, in the West Bank. Um, it also abstained when a ceasefire was in question at the Security Council, right? So, so Switzerland is far from actually a neutral um, state. In terms of reception in my current uh, environment, I would say there's been a lot of disappointments to 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 say the least, um, students at the moment, I mean, there hasn't been any interaction with students on this yet. Um, but in terms of tenured faculty taking up a real stance and a real position, there have been a few exceptions, um, of people I really respect and admire who took the right stance from the beginning, but I would say that others are very disappointed. Yeah. I'll leave it, I'll leave it vague. Yeah, I understand. Um, let me ask you a different question. Let me ask, um, do you feel like the work you're doing, the work you're doing is in direct solidarity with this issue? Like the, I, I said, for example, like I feel my work is simultaneously more urgent, but, um, but meaningless. Do you feel your work is more urgent than ever? I think two things here. I think that solidarity, I mean, it, this is, for me, it's my cause, right? So, in, yeah. in, a, in a sense, um, any cause that is, is Palestinian, that is Arab, is, to me, at least in my own belief system, is inherently mine. Um, and is something that I work towards. And I think that's echoed, or I tried my best to echo that in my work, whether a crisis is happening or not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and otherwise, I could have just went and designed beautiful buildings. Uh, but that, to, to me, is, is really pointless at this point. That's not where I find I can contribute to. Part of the... the battle or, 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 or 
arena that, that I've chosen for myself, at, at least until now, has been this question histories, but also narratives. Um, how do we understand the past? What does this past tell us about the present? Because, I mean, a lot of the questions that we ask about the past have a lot to do, have a lot more to do with the present than they have to do with history, actually. They tell us more about the current moment than they tell us about what happened before. Yeah. Um, so there's this question of why are we asking these questions in this particular moment? And I do sincerely believe that at least since the Arab Spring, we've seen a desire by people from our region to pose new kinds of questions about, about the past. And I think I see myself as, as, as a small part of, of this broader uh, way. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, that's how I, I, I position it, at least for me. So let, let's say you were speaking to an auditorium filled with architects mm -hmm. who care about Palestine, whether they're Arab, Palestinian, not, doesn't matter, but they are listening to this and it's a auditorium filled with a hundred of these architects, young and old. What are the like questions that you hope that they are asking? whether you have time to answer them yourself, but you're like, can somebody look into this? Please, like we all, I'm doing my small part. I need other people to do their small parts. Like what are the questions that not enough people are asking? Yeah, so I, I, as far as the, as the profession is concerned, so as far yeah. as architecture specifically is concerned, I am finding that a lot of young people and people who are just graduating right now um, tend to escape from architecture. And I think this, so they study architecture and they leave it. Um, and I think this phenomena is happening because of the nature of our education systems and architecture being completely outdated. But I think more importantly, not only being outdated, but being irrelevant. So students are being taught to think about things that do not match the realities they live in, right? I think otherwise. I think that there is a chance here to use our profession to really interpret reality and intervene in. I don't think the tools that architecture trains you in uh, are to be underestimated. At the same time, we shouldn't overestimate ourselves. It's Can you give me an example? Yeah, yeah. What What are some of these tools that are... Um, some people underestimate, but you're like, no, 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 these are relevant tools. And in what ways are they actually relevant? Yeah. I mean, for instance, I mean, the mere documentation of the built environment and understanding it to me is a huge thing that is today necessary in, in Palestine and the Arab region. And that's why we're seeing the surge of, of initiatives by, by architects that are trying to work outside, uh, we, outside private firms but also outside academia to try and actually document our built environment. Because at the same time that our cities are being destroyed, I think documenting them is not merely about romanticizing these cities and, you know, they used to be beautiful, etc. It's not about that, but it's about an, an inherent part of our history is actually our cities. The way we build is 
a direct reflection of the kinds of societies that we want to organize. Um, so in that sense, documenting, analyzing, understanding these built environments is also about understanding our societies, it's understanding our cultures, and even understanding politics. Yeah. Because there's what you do and there's what's done to you. And both of these things are, are measured in, in spatial terms, are things you can actually go on the ground and, and, and draw and survey them. So I would say that that, that is an important tool. Um, I would say there's something at a more polemic level. There's something about architecture that is about bringing in different tools and modes of knowledge into understanding phenomena. So I, I don't think any good architect is merely an architect. I think a good architect is someone who reads philosophy, who reads politics, who's socially engaged, who understands culture and art, right? So I think the moment you're able to bring all of these understandings together is, 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 is the moment that you truly master the craft of this architecture. Whether yeah. you decide to be an architect, design, or, or you do something else with that. Yeah. So I think these, these are the questions of what can we do at this particular moment? How can we use our knowledge towards the betterment of, of our societies? I think is, 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 is the central question. I want to ask you like, a, uh, I don't know how I'm going to ask this question, but, um, I saw a video today for the guardian posted that shows insane amount of destruction in Ghazal. Mm -hmm. Just like a before and after all this aerial footage of, of Ghazal and in some ways it's effective. The aerial, uh, aerial vantage point is supremely effective in dehumanizing the space, right? It's a two-dimensional, looks entirely two-dimensional. Um, there are no people in the before, there are no people in the after, and it's just boxes, that squares that look like buildings, and then gray rubble everywhere. Um, so the questions are, the first question is, where does the Guardian get that footage? That's my first one. Who's like, whose satellite imagery is taking live feeds of, of Palestine? And is, are these, is this, is this like a military feed that, that the Guardian has access to? That's the first question. That's weird. Like, mm -hmm. because the aerial footage that you're referencing was paid by for, paid by the the military, I, I would imagine, and then the second question, which is harder to harder to ask, um, is how do these how do these buildings and neighborhoods get rebuilt? I mean, how do how are they paid for? How how do they get rebuilt? How do families re reassemble and societies reassemble in? after such an insane, heartless uh, bombardment. In terms of the imagery, I think it's important to distinguish between aerial imagery and satellite imagery, right? Uh, and I did not see these Guardian photos, yeah. but I'm assuming they're probably satellite imageries with, which people could, could purchase. I mean, they're not live, but I don't think we're there yet. Uh, but 
I mean, there, there are snapshots taken at particular intervals in time, either monthly or weekly or daily, uh, depending on, on the satellite and who has access to it. Um, as for the second question, which is the question of reconstruction, I think, I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's really difficult at this very moment to, to delve into that question precisely because the destruction is still happening. I think in the history of Gaza, in the history of cities from World War II until this moment, and I say World War II because that's the moment where aerial bombardment becomes the true force uh, in war. Um, in this case, in our case, in genocide, um, we've seen I mean, entire destructions of cities, whether in, in Europe, uh, whether you talk about Dresden or, or any other European city that got heavily bombarded in World War II, uh, up until to what we, we, we were seeing in Syria uh, not too long ago. Uh, and obviously Gaza for the past 15 years of, of subsequent wars, where, where aerial power and aerial um, bombing is, has become this, this simple and easy tool for the, the, the complete destructions of the lives of, of hundreds of thousands of millions. Uh, you, and I mean, we're seeing today the whole conversation about whether the Israeli army is able to make a ground uh, incursion or not in, in, in Gaza. Uh, and it's proven much more difficult for them than an Aryan bombardment. Um, I think for some, for some obvious reasons, uh, but in terms of how cities get rebuilt, well, cities, cities have, a, have, a, have an enormous and actually very impressive ability to, to get rebuilt. Um, the, the, the gates of, of Gaza, uh, have seen conquerors from, from Alexander the Great to, to, to Napoleon, to the armies of Ibrahim Basha of Egypt, to the British troops who came in 1917, you know, um, the city is still there and it survives. And I think that's what's important to keep in mind is that it survives because of its people. It survives because of its popul Palestinian population who lives there and have been, have the, 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 the attachment to this land that's rightly their homeland, um, and as a result, are able to to rebuild after after this 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 uh, mass mass destruction. Um, I think it says a lot. It says a lot just to to look and observe about, or just to look and observe who's who's the force of destruction. Here and who is really trying to 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 build um, to build their futures, to build their hopes, to build their visions, um, or for a just and dignified reality? Yeah, yeah. Um, before we go, I want to put you on the spot a little bit and ask you for recommendations um, for people who are interested in understanding some of the the infrastructure uh, uh both not only in palestine but how infrastructure can be used as a 
um, a tool of oppression um, and a tool of control. Um, I'd be curious, do you have any like recommended reading or things that people can, you can point to and say, you should like Google this, Google that? Um, no. Yeah. Um, so I think one thing maybe I'll mention that um, we worked on in, in Arab urbanism recently. Um, yeah. We published an issue called Imaginaries from a Blackout. And this came out a few months ago. Um, and the contributors stood out are people from all over the region um, or working on the region who wrote precisely about this question of how is infrastructure inter or entangled with, uh, with the political conditions and the social aspirations of people. And so, so it's on the one hand, it's about the infrastructure of failure, um, of the many things we, we are seeing in, in our Arab cities. On the other hand, it's also about everyday experiences with this infrastructure and how, 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 how people overcome, um, and invent new means, uh, not because they want to be sustainable, right? you know, but because they want to survive, actually. Yeah. Um, the, the conversation we're having in the Arab region is very different than the conversation around, you know, sustainability and change in, in, in the West, which comes from a much more luxurious standpoint, I think. Yeah. Um, so, so this issue, I think, uh, which is guest edited by uh, Lana Jude and Hamad Abarru, both architects and, and scholars, uh, I think is, is really worth worth looking into because it, it, it talks about these things only historically, but what's happening in, in the present moment uh, from Beirut to Khartoum to Cairo um, to the Maghreb. So I, I, I would say that. that can, you, can you say the name one more time? So it's um, the latest issue of the Arab Urbanism magazine, which is called Imaginaries from a Black Hat. Great. And in Arabic, it's called <laughs> yeah, the, the Arabic the title's better. <laughs> yeah, of course. Some things cannot be translated. Yeah. Um, it's also, it's like, it's not only the electricity. I mean, the stories of cholera coming yeah. out of uh, uh, Gaza, and it's, it's, it's really, really scary. Um, very, very scary because the history of genocide um, is through is most often through that, right? This is yeah. uh, the story of the Native Americans in, in the U.S. and most of the Western Hemisphere. Um, and so, I mean, the 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 major utilities, water, sewage, all of that is controlled entirely by Israel. Yeah. And we're seeing the devastating effects of that in, in Gaza today. Uh, but of course, Israel has control over all these utilities throughout Palestine, uh, all the way from, from the Jordan Valley to, to Gaza. Um, so it's important that people keep, keep that in mind. Uh, that genocide sometimes, sometimes is fast, sometimes includes direct massacres. And, and direct murder of people, 
But in other instances, it's also it's a slow process that uh, is based on the the yeah the full control of our resources of life, um, and and prohibiting um, in this case Palestinians from from accessing them. Yeah. Um, before we uh, before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about your um, upcoming book. Um, which I'm sure is the last thing on your mind. Um, but I think it's important to talk about it. Um, so would you mind, uh, telling us a little bit about what the book is, um, and, um, the, how it connects to what we're talking about? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll, the connection I'm going to draw is going to be a big tangent to, to the actual yeah. book. The book is titled Birth of a Professional Arab Architects and the Making of the Modern Arab World. Yeah, it's connected. It's precisely, uh, yeah, it's precisely about the thing we, we discussed earlier about, you know, how the architecture profession is, 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 uh, emerges in, in the Arab region with large. Uh, but the main thing I think that to me interests me in writing this is about regionalism is about this question of relations between Arab countries, precisely at the moment that borders were being drawn between them. That these borders, which came mostly as a result of British and French colonial intervention in the region, did not prohibit Arabs from creating and forging methods of exchange and means of exchange. And I think that to me is the main question here is how do we as Arabs today forge connections despite everything? I mean, we know our borders, we know our regimes, we know the difficulties, we know everything, but how do we have conversations that are not merely happening amongst ourselves within each of our, you know, national territories, but regionally across the board. And I think this, this remains an incredible and important question. After the 1967 defeat, um, there was an Arab Engineering Congress that was held in Kuwait. Um, and Arab Engineering Congresses date all the way back to 1945, and they're, they're among the subjects of, of the book that I'm writing. That I'm writing. And in this 1968 or 69 conference, which happened immediately after engineers sort of dropped, including architects, dropped all the questions, dropped all the questions that are about you know, technical issues, dropped everything. And the main question raised in that Congress was, how do we use our profession? How do we use these skills that we have, this knowledge that we have in order to address the defeat of, of, of Arab states against Israel? This was the main question raised in that Congress. Mm. I think today, many decades later, I think that conversation is missing. It's definitely missing at the formal level, you know, where the, the Arab League is as dysfunctional as, as ever. Um, but at least what we could do as, um, as people from the region who, who have different agendas, who obviously care about the welfare of the entire region, 
is to create these bonds and to raise these questions collectively. Um, and I think that's that's probably the point I, I, I would wish to, to, to highlight in the present moment. I love it. Um, Nedi, uh, thanks so much for joining us on a Saturday morning during a insanely tough time. Um, I appreciate your, your thoughts and, uh, yeah. Thank, Thank you so you much, man. Thank you.